it's going to fly at me, let me know, okay? Hmm. This morning we're reading from the final chapter of the story that deals with the Old Testament, chapter 21. And so for the last, I guess since January, we've been reading through the Old Testament. And so today is our final stop in the Old Testament. Although as we read the New Testament, uh, we are constantly reminded and our eyes are constantly turned back to look at the Old Testament and to remember the faithfulness of God as he reached out to his people. So this morning we're going to be reading from page 291 is where the chapter starts. I'm actually going to start on page 293, which is the story of Ezra from the book of Ezra in the Old Testament. Um, Ezra, well, I'll talk about it in a minute, but let me share with you what it says. Now I decree, this is King Artaxerxes of Persia, who said, I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites, who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, Ezra, may go. You were sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisors have freely given the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams, and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. On page 295, we read a portion from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a temple official who was sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It says, In the month of Kislev, in the twelfth year, 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers from Judah, with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you this day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. The last scripture I wanted to share with you all this morning comes from page 304. It's from the book of Malachi. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. 
It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, said the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you, who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked, and they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees, and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and deadful day. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. So this morning we're wrapping up our journey through the Old Testament in the story. Since the first Sunday in January, we have looked each week at pretty much every portion of the Old Testament, every book. As we began with Adam and Eve, as we journeyed with Moses and the Israelites through the wilderness, as we were with Elijah on Mount Carmel against with Ahab and, and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal, as we were with Esther in the land of in the citadel of Susa, and as we read many more great stories of the Bible, stories that point us to the faithfulness of God and stories that point us to God's people living in response to his love in their lives. Stories that tell the history of the people of Israel and of Judah. But more importantly, they're stories that that really point our eyes to God as we see how the people of Israel were constantly used by God to point others' eyes to Him. These stories remind us of the faithfulness of God, of how God's faithful love allows people to choose to choose to, to take advantage of the opportunity to return to Him. Even as they've worshipped other gods, even as they have not followed her laws, even as they have distanced themselves from him, even as they have allowed themselves to become distracted in their success and go and do other things. Every time we read, or in every book in the Old Testament, we read about how God gives people an opportunity to return. And so my hope in the reading of the story is that you and I have each read portions of scripture that we have never read before. Or we've skimmed over because they're not the first five books of Moses in the Old Testament. And they're not part of the book of Psalms. But we have spent time in the portions of the Bible that tell us about the kings and the prophets. And and the other people in the Bible. The time in which the Jews are exiled. The diaspora. And the time in which they return. And in each book, I hope what we've seen is that all along God has been faithful. All along, God's plan of a perfect relationship with His people that was outlined in the very first chapter with the story of Adam and Eve was God's plan all along. Every time. Even when the people of Israel strayed in their time in the wilderness and had Aaron craft the two golden or the golden calf that they were going to worship. Even when the people strayed in their, their success in the northern kingdom of Israel based out of Samaria and they had great wealth and great trade, yet they strayed, God allowed them to return and God was faithful. But God is faithful so that you and I might accept His love for us and live in response to that. And I think that's what we read this morning. 
As we read the final chapter of the story, which is, to me, has been kind of a confusing chapter to read because it's an overlapping of three different books of the Old Testament. We read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. We also read the book of Malachi, which is the final prophet of the Old Testament. These stories overlap in in their chronology of when they happened in the history of the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Because it is believed by biblical scholars that that in the history, these men overlapped in their time in Jerusalem. And so Ezra was there, and then later Nehemiah came, and then even later during this time, Malachi was sent by God to speak to the people in the city and to speak and offer the faithfulness of God to them once again. But first, Ezra who was a priest. He was a descendant of Aaron. In fact, if you go look in the book of Ezra, it traces the the genealogy of Ezra and shows exactly who he is a descendant of because he is a descendant of Aaron who was the brother of Moses, the the first priest called by God to be in ministry to the people. And Ezra was called, to put it in short, is he was called by God to, to give people an opportunity to live in response to him. He saw that they were living apart from God. He saw that they were straying from the life that God was offering them. He saw that they were taking advantage of the temple that they had rebuilt, yet it was not done. And so under Ezra, the people of Jerusalem gathered together and they read the book of the law. And according to some history books, it says that it was the first time in 140 years that the people of Jerusalem heard the book of the law read to them. And it was a time that things had changed and so the book of the law was written in an older version of Hebrew and so the people in their time, unless you were a scribe or a scholar, were not able to read it and understand it. But the book of Ezra says that what he would do is he would teach in the morning, he would read the book of the law and then there would be Levites gathered there amongst the people and they would gather them around and they would say, here is what this means. See, Ezra's time, his ministry with the people of Judah was a time of revival. So that they could once again understand what it meant to be a people who lived in relationship with God. So they could once again understand what it meant to be a people who were living in the land that God had promised them, the city of Jerusalem, and who were worshiping in the temple like their their ancestors had done. Except all was not perfect, we find out in the book of Nehemiah. All was not perfect, the temple had been rebuilt, but Jerusalem was still in shambles. There was great risk from enemies, the walls were not fortified and and fixed, the gates were not set into the openings in the walls where they should have been. And so we read in the book of Nehemiah about a servant who was the cup-bearer for King Artaxerxes of Persia. Nehemiah, for whatever reason, has become put in this position of honor. He is in the citadel of Susa with Artaxerxes, and he finds out that the walls of Jerusalem have never been restored, that the city is in shambles, that things are not as good as they had been led to believe, and he was heartbroken. And so he spent time in prayer. He fasted. He prayed that God would give him an opportunity to act in the way that God needed him to act when he appeared before the king. I think this story shows us how God can use other people 
to accomplish his will. Just like we read a few weeks ago about how God used Cyrus of Persia to allow the people of Judah to return to Jerusalem. Because for whatever reason, apparently Artaxerxes was so familiar with Nehemiah and he knew him, Artaxerxes recognized that Nehemiah was upset when he saw him and he cared enough for him to ask. And so Nehemiah was able to tell him. He was a, and then he was granted the opportunity to return to Jerusalem where he was to rebuild the walls. See, God had promised that the walls would be rebuilt. God had said that the city of Jerusalem would once again be a light shining on a hill for all of the people of the world to look and see and recognize the God of Israel. And it's through Nehemiah that God was going to work and offer that opportunity. And so when he arrived to to Jerusalem, Nehemiah didn't go in and say, I'm here, let's get to work. But what the book says he did is he spent three days surveying, looking, preparing. He was out for three nights walking around the walls, looking at the walls, going in and out of the gates to see what needed to be done, to see what needed to be finished. And then he went to the people and he told them, we've got to do this. And they did. Just like how we read earlier in the the Old Testament about how the strength of Jerusalem, people and the neighbors, you know, opposed it. That's the same as, as what Nehemiah experienced. There were other peoples and other lands that surrounded Jerusalem and Judah that, that didn't want the city to be restored and fortified because they knew what would happen. They knew that a fortified city would mean that the people of Israel, of Judah and Jerusalem would once again be mighty or once again have security. And so they plotted. And so the book of Nehemiah is about plotting. It's about the people who oppose Nehemiah trying to lure him out of the city. Because Nehemiah was attentive. And what he did is he had half of the people who were supposed to be working on the walls stand with their weapons ready. On the outside of the walls so that whenever someone attacked them, the people who were working could keep going. Or at least could have time to get to their own weapons. But his attentiveness kept them from being attacked. And so they tried a different tact and they tried to lure Nehemiah out of the city to meet with them. Four or five times they invited him and every time Nehemiah said no because he knew what the task was that he had been sent there for. It wasn't to go out and negotiate. It wasn't to go out and greet in the name of Jerusalem or Judah as a representative. His task that God had sent them there for was to rebuild the walls. And so he did it. With guards that were posted. With neighbors who were upset. But they did it. And in 52 days, the book of Nehemiah says the walls were completed. And they were once again able to worship God in the way that they had and begin living in the way that they had wanted to live. And then our final portion of the book today was Malachi. The final prophet of the Old Testament that if I remember correctly we don't know much about. Except that Malachi was bringing his book, this book has been arranged to bring the Old Testament to a close and telling the people of Jerusalem basically to choose. 
and in choosing there to look ahead. See, Malachi came at a time in which they were to choose whom they were going to serve. They were to choose who they were going to worship. They were to choose what type of sacrifices they were bringing. They were to choose how they were living and engaging in the relationships that they were part of. But they had to choose. Jerusalem had been restored. The temple had been rebuilt. Success was once again happening in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. And as we have seen numerous times, whenever the people of Israel, whenever the people of God find themselves in a place of safety, they allow themselves to be distracted. And so to Malachi, he's coming and he's saying, you've got to choose. Yes, the walls have been rebuilt. Yes, the temple has been restored. Yes, we are relatively secure. But we are living and taking for granted the gift of life that God has given us. See, the people in Jerusalem had begun bringing imperfect sacrifices to God. In their security, they had allowed their eyes to to wander from God to other things. They were not offering their best in their worship. They were not being faithful in their marriages. Malachi simply told them that they had to choose. Choose who you're going to serve. Choose how you're going to worship. Choose how you're going to live your life. In response to the love, to the faithfulness, to the God who has restored this land. But you have to choose. And then he pointed their eyes ahead. When he said that one is going to come who is going to be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap, one who is going to purify those, who is going to guide those, and who is going to prepare the way for God's return to this earth. But he says you have to choose. To be able to recognize the gift of of the Messiah who is going to come. To be able to recognize the prophet that we know today as John the Baptist whom God is going to send to prepare the way you have to choose. To be aware of how you're going to worship, of what you're going to offer, of how you're going to offer yourself to the God who gives you love and to the God who gives you life. See, Malachi's message is about choosing. As he looked at the faithfulness of God that has been given to all the people, that had been demonstrated throughout the generations and demonstrated through the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and through the restoration of the temple, they had to choose. And then he pointed their eyes ahead and he points our eyes ahead to the one who was to come, to the Son of God who was going to come, who was going to also be a man, who was going to live and demonstrate and show to the world what it meant to have the kingdom of God at hand. But Malachi said, you have to choose. And so we gather here this day as a people who choose each and every day what we offer to the Lord. What we offer in our worship, what we offer in ourselves, what we offer in our relationships to those that God brings us in contact with. And Malachi says, choose. And in your choosing, choose to accept that which gives you life. 
Choose to accept that which gives you hope. Choose to accept that which allows you to respond to the faithfulness of God that has been offered to you and to me and to generations of people. Let's see, Malachi says we have to choose. And so this day we share in a meal. As we celebrate, as we proclaim a choice that God make as part of His plan all along to have a perfect relationship with us. As we celebrate communion, remembering that Jesus offered it to us, not as something for us to somberly practice, but as something for us to joyfully receive. For it's through it that we receive life and forgiveness. It's through it that we proclaim once again the gift that God has given us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so I invite you this day to choose. To choose to live the life that God has given you. To choose to bring your best in worship and in the relationships and in all the ways that God, all the places that God has put you. And may we come this day and choose to receive this life, this grace, and this forgiveness that Christ has offered us. Amen.